You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow, live at CES Las Vegas. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up on the show, hackers target the SEC's X account to falsely announce approval of the Bitcoin spot ETF. We'll break down what happened and what we can expect regarding today's deadline. Plus, Hewlett Packard Enterprises, well, it announces plans to buy Juniper Networks for $14 billion. We are going to discuss the deal with the HPE CEO, Antonio Neri. And the CES coverage, it continues. We sit down with the CEOs of Siemens, Panasonic's US Arms, as a tech conference is really the life and soul of technology coverage as it stands right now. We go out to you, Ed, in Las Vegas right now. And, well, the wealth of discussion around autos, the wealth of discussion around AI was clear to see yesterday. What do you see being really adopted by the press at the moment? You know, I think day two this morning, certainly the news cycle is starting to play out here because you have everybody on the ground in high concentration from across these industries. You know, we got that EV data for the last three months of 2023. There are lots of EV companies here that are worried about the demand picture. We'll have a conversation with Panasonic later in the show about that. But also Amazon and Twitch news about layoffs. That is a point of discussion for obvious reasons. Yeah, the ongoing concern about whether technology valuations are right. Just think about the RBC note coming out from Laurie Calvacina today just saying look valuations too high they're cutting their overall recommendation on US tech is that a bit of a downdraft that's happening in CES? Yeah, it's interesting. We kicked off this week with that NVIDIA news, right, on their uh, AI graphics chips for PC, and that put the stock to a, to a fresh record. I know it's continued to kind of train in a narrow range since, but there are people that think that NVIDIA is still kind of cheap. And what we're seeing here in the news cycle is companies say, OK, this is how we're actually going to use AI in our business internally, and we want you to assign some more value to our companies because the AI is going to boost our margins and increase our sales conversion. Our 
dig a bit more into that later in the show, but I put a newsletter out on that point this morning, and that really genuinely is the conversation. And it's going to be a conversation we have with the HPE CEO, because of course a lot of that is about aligning his business for the AI focus as well. But we have to get into that news regarding the SEC's Bitcoin ETF decision, and well, the hack, of course, that took place at about 4 p.m. yesterday in New York time. It happened on X. Joining us now is Bloomberg Shanali Basak. And just regarding the X debacle, now many sort of pointing fingers. Ultimately, it seemed to be a lack of double authentication, two-factor authentication. Do not use your phone as your second form of authentication if that was indeed what was happening. But what did you make of the market reaction? Because everyone anticipates this. It's going to be signed off. Yeah, it, it was a real-time test of what would happen if the SEC does approve a Bitcoin ETF. You saw the price spike to almost $48,000, but when the news was reversed, we have seen a very sluggish movement here, even though many market participants, including many of the issuers, believe that they still will get that approval today. And so you've seen the price crash back down by more than $2,000 per Bitcoin. You have seen it crash down closer to uh, $45,000 at its low. It's kind of $45,000 1500 give or take at the moment does it get back to that nearly $48,000 high and in the coming days if we do get an approval and more trading then what does it mean for price action after that there are a lot of investors as you know Caroline that believe that maybe this is priced to perfection mm -hmm. and we've seen the best uh, uh, in terms of movement in terms of um, what an SEC could bring or an SEC approval for a spot Bitcoin ETF could bring to the table for for Bitcoin the likes of those that are offering the ETFs and we know that there seems to be a race to the bottom in terms of management fees it's going to be incredibly cheap to be able to build this into your overall portfolio but are they worried by these sorts of false starts are they worried that that further dents a desire to be getting into a, the speculative asset class? Well, it's interesting. The less of the concern was around the, the ETF itself and the Bitcoin ETF approval, and more concern was around the SEC and its management processes here. As you said earlier, X had said that this was not a hack. It was because of a, a compromised individual stealing a, a phone number associated with the SEC account. I think it's interesting that Gary Gensler himself used the word compromise rather than hack. Now, remember, there are a lot of lawmakers here attacking the SEC as well as, as Gary Gensler, Republican lawmakers in particular, concerned about how the SEC is managing this process. I would also say that Coinbase's executives, I don't know if you guys have seen this, they're online saying that they could be a part of the solution here. The SEC and Coinbase have been in their own disputes <laughs> for, for the last couple of months. And so uh, the SEC's ability to oversee the crypto industry has certainly long been in question. And now there are more eyes on that after the SEC snafu last night. That did seem to rub salt into a rather gaping open wound for the SEC. We thank you, Shanali Basak, of course, just to reiterate that my husband is a director over at Coinbase. Meanwhile, we want to be talking about what's happening in the broader crypto sphere, what all of this means if we do indeed get the sign-off for a spot Bitcoin ETF as soon as today. Shalak Jubanputra is with us, founder and managing partner of Future Perfect Ventures. It's an early-stage VC firm focusing on blockchain technology, on crypto assets, on AI, on human-computer interaction, all of the exciting parts of the tech sphere. Jalik, what did you ultimately think of this almost test case of the price reaction to the sign-off? Because how much is baked in? How much of this exuberance is already sort of there and, and within the 48,000 price point? Well, it's great to be with you again. And uh, I think this has been 
an amazing uh, 24 hours, uh, very <laughs> apropos for, for crypto. And uh, I, I do think if we look at the, the price action, it's been with a pretty narrow range. Uh, and, and so I think there's still a lot of pent up energy and, and demand for the asset. What does it ultimately mean for crypto more broadly? There has been a lot of focus, therefore, on the OG of the space, Bitcoin. It's been perhaps dragging away some of the liquidity and, and ultimately volumes from altcoins. But you are busy thinking about business models within mm -hmm. crypto. Is there exuberance into building into other parts? I'm thinking of ETH or Solana. Yeah, so if you look at ETH, uh, ETH has appreciated quite a bit over the last uh, 24 hours, especially since the hack. And I think there's an expectation or a viewpoint that uh, the SEC will uh, continue to approve uh, select uh, crypto assets at ETFs. And, and that allows a lot more retail investors, a lot more institutions to, to custody, feel comfortable of uh, owning these, these assets. So. If we take a step back, and, and these, these are new financial asset classes, but also it's all driven by technology and, and what's been uh, enabled by the increase in processing power we've had, the, the, and a lot of it works in tandem with artificial intelligence. So all of these technologies are now being enabled uh, in real time, and it's a new financial system uh, that uh, will not only be built on these rails, but also allow more access for people to um, to own these these assets. I have so many people around the world that I've talked to over the last 10 years since I launched Future Perfect Ventures who have asked, how do I buy Bitcoin? And, you know, they didn't know that you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. Uh, they didn't know how to custody Bitcoin. And, and this is on a worldwide basis. So this ETF approval, this Bitcoin ETF approval is a, is a first step to allow uh, more mass ownership uh, of, of these self-sovereign assets. And and um, I, I think this is certainly a watershed moment in terms of not only the financial elements of this, but the technology behind these assets. Let's see if it happens. Shalek Jumanputra, we want to thank you so much, founder, managing partner of Future Perfect Ventures. We thank you so much. On Tuesday, HPE, it announced it has agreed to buy Juniper Networks for $14 billion in a move that will expand its presence in networking in particular. But there is also some skepticism being raised by Wall Street, as we saw with the price action. HPE CEO Antonio Neri joins us now to talk us through the reasoning. What attracted you to Juniper Networks? Why focus in data centers expansion? Yes. Networking, cloud networking presence expansion? Yes. Any worry about overlap here, Antonio? Well, good afternoon, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. Yesterday was an exciting day for HPE, our shareholders, our customers, and our employees. We are reshaping the entire networking industry by combining two amazing companies with amazing complementary assets to capture the inflection point we see today, particularly with the AI. So we believe this is going to turbocharge the strategy that I have put in place five years ago, and we have been executing with discipline and then ultimately give us the relevancy in this massive inflection point. And Juniper brings to us the complementary capabilities we didn't have across the networking portfolio. But think about it this way. We are actually creating a new core business for Hewlett Packard Enterprise, which will represent more than a third of the company revenues, and most importantly, almost 60% of the company profit. 
and we will address a market that's growing, which represents approximately $180 billion. And this uh, acquisition, this proposed acquisition, is going to be a creative mm. post-close day one. So it's an exciting time for everyone. I think the market needs to understand it, but they will realize that we're going to challenge the 20 years incumbency with modern architectures and drive better solutions for our customers. Let's talk about those solutions. Let's talk about that modern focus because Cisco basically is the gorilla in the room that we're talking about. And Juniper Networks isn't a new asset. It's an older one that has failed to gain that market share from some of these competitors in the switching and the networking space. Why with you will it be different? Yeah, well, I think we need to understand their business a little bit more in depth, right? So obviously, when you think about the internet area, Juniper today powers a lot of the internet connectivity. Uh, and so that's an enormous foundation. When we think about the enterprise business, uh, they have done a fantastic job driving what I call the AI-driven disruption. Obviously, they have a powerful platform with Mist. We have an amazing platform with HP Aruba Networking. Both are complementary because we have the scale, the reach, both from a technology and go-to-market perspective. But also, they have been um, innovating what I call the next generation of AI-driven secure networking. So we're going to bring both together and deliver a better solution for customers. On the other side, you need to understand that also bring an amazing silicon ASIC capabilities for high-performance uh, networking. We already in HPE have been focused on AI, uh, interconnect fabric. This will turbocharge our strategy because we are the market leader in supercomputing. And when you talk about AI and talk about large language model, you talk about foundation models, whether it's weather or whether it's other type of applications, you need high-performance silicon. And the core foundation of that is the network. We're going to create that network solution. We are going to add the data layer on top of that, and we're going to deliver this secure, unified experience to our amazing platform called HP GreenLake. Sticking with the ultimate technology and the profitability of it, Antonio, the margin difference that we see within the networking businesses, Juniper's is lower than yours. How do you bring that up? Is that about ensuring that you're within the AI sphere, you're being able to charge more for what you're providing? Actually, Karen, you have to look at two levels of margin. You have to look at the gross margin level and they have super high gross margin level because of the entire ownership of the stack from silicon to infrastructure to software, similar to what we do in campus and branch. But we're going to bring to them the efficiency in order to drive the operating margin leverage by reducing cost around the ability to go and execute. So we believe the first step is the cost synergies. That's why the synergy cost more than pay off for the capital that we are taking to pay for this transaction. And then on top of that, you're going to have the revenue synergies, a higher gross margin, the ultimate through the scale of our reach will drive better operating margins for our shareholders. And that will translate into free cash flow. Because remember, this transaction is a creative day one for both a non-gap EPS and free cash flow basis. We want to remind our Bloomberg TV and radio audiences we are sat down with the HPE CEO, Antonio Neri, and you're talking about that cost discipline. Where do the costs come out? Is it people? Is it jobs? The cost actually is many things, to be fair. I mean, the biggest part will be in the GNA side. 
you know, HPE and my team had had that tremendous track record in driving operating leverage across the company. When I became CEO of HPE, our non-GAAP earnings per share was 96 uh, cents. We exit um, uh, 2023 to more than $2.12. And a lot of that was gross margin expansion to pivot the portfolio, which this transaction turbocharges, right? We can talk about gross margin, higher growth areas, and then reducing the cost to run the business through automation and efficiencies. Mm -hmm. So that GNA portion will be a huge booster to the Juniper operating margin. And remember also, we are gonna give them access to capabilities they couldn't deliver themselves in terms of as a service model, cloud uh, scale, and last but not least, the go-to-market. HP yeah. has a crown jewel, which is a go-to-market reach everywhere in the world, 172 countries, a scale they couldn't imagine themselves. Antonio, we've got but a minute left. $40 billion in cash is a lot of money. What about the buybacks? What about the dividends? What about how yeah. else you're able to pay back when you've got a heavier debt load? Well, first of all, this transaction is $13.6 billion. I know people like to run things up, but... Uh, you know, uh, we are committed, number one, to maintain our credit rating, uh, which is very important to us. Uh, and we, we believe that's uh, uh, absolutely doable. Uh, number two, we are maintaining the share buyback commitment we gave at the security analyst meeting in October mm -hmm. and the dividends, which is a core component of our return, uh, capital return to shareholders. And then over the next two years post-closing, we're going to uh, return to two times leverage on our EBITDA. And, and pay down the debt. And one component of that paying down the debt is obviously the proceeds from our H3C divestors in China, which is proceeding very well. And obviously the synergies that we're gonna drive through the free cash flow generation uh, on both the Juniper side and on obviously on the HP side. So that's why when I think about the shareholders, this is a no-brainer in many ways because it's the best use of cash to drive long-term sustainable profit growth and expansion of earnings per share and free cash flow, which will actually result in a better return of capital to shareholder over time. Antonio Neri, great to have some time with you. The HPE CEO. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome back to CES Las Vegas, where it is AI everything, but it's not just about the software component or devices, also a lot of the infrastructure and platform providers getting in on the act as well. We're joined by Siemens US CEO, Barbara Humpton, and you, your company is, is positioning itself at lots of different layers of what is happening in artificial intelligence. The, the, the mainstay of that is a relationship with both AWS and Microsoft, the two kind of cloud leaders in the space. Just explain what you're doing. Yeah, here's what's going on these days. If the last decade or two was about the Internet of People, this, de this decade for sure is about the Internet of Things. And Siemens has deep domain knowledge. Now you think about all of the classic tech companies who've worked in the fields of AI, uh, bringing this to bear, uh, and, and others like NVIDIA who are bringing high processing power into the field. We're partnering with companies who have those superpowers and focusing those technologies on the domains we understand so well. Yeah. Let's get to the AWS component because what you're effectively saying is you're taking one of your technology platforms and marrying it with Bedrock, which we've covered on this program uh, deeply for a while now. How does it work? Yeah, so think about um, the need for people to embed uh, AI programs into their operations. With AWS components, AI components, now with Siemens low-code Mendix, uh, the normal people like us, uh, we're, we're democratizing technology. We have the ability to use point and click, very intuitive interfaces to put together our own programs. And Microsoft is a part of that as well. What is the difference in, in the relationships? Yeah, they've got slightly different focus areas. With Microsoft, we recently announced the industrial co-pilot. Now imagine you want to reprogram the controls that you have in a manufacturing environment. You now have the ability with the industrial co-pilot to actually interface with natural language to write the programs. So now I really think what we're going to be able to do is bring more and more people into the fields of engineering. Let me tell you about one more. Sony. Sony just announced their exclusive arrangement with us, working with Siemens software through the accelerator platform creating an industrial engineering VR headset. We're bringing the industrial metaverse to life. And everybody has talked about what's the true value of the metaverse. Well, here is the proof point. The ability for engineers to actually meet in a common area from wherever and to use the intuitive interfaces that they know from gaming in order to interact and create, develop new things. I want to bring it back to the real world. Uh, Roland Bush, the global CEO, spoke to us last year when you announced a more than $500 million infrastructure investment in the US. That's right. The idea is that you want to be a part of the supply chain for the data center providers, the semiconductor supply chain as well. What is it that you can give them? How are you helping them? So Siemens creates the technology that combines the real and the digital world. All those things that sit right at the edge. And what does it take to bring AI into the world? We need data centers capable of handling that. How do you build data centers? It requires a ton of electricity. So the electrical switch gear that powers those data centers, then turn it around. How do you embed what's being developed into the technology we have in the industrial space? So that $500 million investment has actually put new switch gear manufacturing in Texas, and it's put new rail manufacturing in North Carolina. I know you've been meeting with a number of government officials while you've been here. On that investment specifically, 
how big a factor was the IRA in convincing Siemens that this was a good project? What Siemens has seen is that customers everywhere are choosing to come to the U.S. and invest. You've seen the data on the Chips and Science Act, $52 billion of, of government investment. That's a down payment. So far, well over $250 billion have already been committed by the private sector. Which Siemens divisions are going to benefit the most from this AI boom? And is there anything missing? and I'm talking M&A, that you've got to go shopping for. Oh, this is the most exciting sector in tech today. Think about it. You know, everyone has thought about industry and infrastructure as being relatively disconnected, relatively analog. All of that is becoming digital. We build those common tools that today apply to industry, infrastructure, transportation, healthcare. Investors ought right. to be asking, what else could this do? How do we bring value into the real world? Siemens, U.S. CEO Barbara Hampton here at CES. All the EV names are seeing some weakness today. And this is as we see some of those sales data coming out from Cox Automotive showing that we've got a third straight, well, sequential decline in growth area for EV sales. Just 1.5% or there or thereabouts of growth that we saw in the last three months of last year. Way off the 15% we saw in Q2. Why the slowing? Let's get over to Ed with someone who'll know. Uh, Caroline here at CES Las Vegas. EV is, is a segment, is, is a big topic of conversation, but that data from Cox about demand hitting the brakes in the final three months of 2023, that is what people are talking about as well. We've got a great conversation coming up. Panasonic North America CEO, Megan Young-Won Lee. So Caroline was referencing this Cox Automotive data, you know, low single-digit growth final three months, but basically there's a feeling that that early adopter EV demand has been and gone. And so the broader market is pulling back a little bit mm -hmm. through the lens of Panasonic as a key battery supplier. What do you see? We don't see it that way at all. And it's a long commitment. Uh, we don't want to get too surprised or intimidated by the short-term um, data. Uh, we're still very committed. And uh, our operation in Reno, that's been there for about 10 years, and our new factory that we're building in Kansas, we're still going bullish. And uh, we're um, looking forward to the production in early next year, 2025. I have many questions about Kansas sure. City. Our audience wanted to know about that when I said on social mm -hmm. media you were coming. Mm -hmm. But first, let me ask about Tesla specifically, mm -hmm. because it's the market incumbent. Mm -hmm. So it, it hit 1.8 million vehicles mm -hmm. in 2023. Mm -hmm. It has a 50% annual growth rate target mm -hmm. each year. Mm -hmm. How do you view Tesla specifically? Because you probably have the best lens as a supplier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have a part long-term partnership with Tesla, and it's still strong. Uh, but Tesla is not the only partner that right. we're seeking. And we want to diversify and really make the EV market in general stronger and sustainable. Kansas City, mm -hmm. it is a ginormous factory yes. that you are hoping to get into production 2025? Early next year. Okay. Mm -hmm. How's that going? Oh, it's going great. So the steel work uh, is about 30% done. We have uh, about 100 plus people already working there. And we have about 650 construction workers uh, working every day. I was there a few months ago and it's massive. It's very impressive. And um, we, will, we will have about 4,000 employees working 
working there once it's in production. And to be prepared for that, we're partnering with local uh, community colleges to make sure. You mean for training purposes? For training. Right. And uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for the community, too, that the students can be prepared and have a job waiting for them. And there's a long-term career. And we want to partner with the workers and the employees who we can work a long term. You said when you go into production, what is it that Kansas City is going to be doing and how is it different from Reno? Uh, Kansas, um, the, the local government and entire uh, business development community has been really strong a partnership since the very beginning, uh, since we started the communication. The location was perfect. Kansas uh, uh, provides a skilled workforce already, and we're very hopeful about that. And it's a wonderful partnership just all around uh, to work with. But, but my question is very simple. In what will it make? You know, what is the product that Panasonic will manufacture in Kansas City. Oh, oh, it's the EV battery. And so any 20. Okay, sorry. Yes, 21. Yeah, 21 uh, EV batteries. The cylindrical lithium-ion EV batteries. I want to get to AI, but a mm -hmm. final on EV batteries because okay. I only get to speak to you once a year. Right. 4680s coming uh -huh. out of Japan right now. Yes. How is that going, and, and what is the future for 4680 in the United States? So uh, uh, we're very bullish about the technology. There's a lot that 46 can do compared to 21 model, but there is a strong demand and. And we're not slowing down on the efficiencies, improving the efficiencies of 21 either. So it's a parallel path, and uh, we feel strongly about both technology. The theme of CES, I think you might agree, is AI everything. Yes. Uh, it's interesting with Panasonic that you are more focused on the use of AI internally mm -hmm. as a technology as part of the production process mm -hmm. and supply chain. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that mean for you? AI is definitely big here. I was I was overwhelmed how um, everyone is talking about AI. But if we think about it, AI has been around, and we call what we call smart factory is a strong part of what we do for the operation in Kansas and Reno, but also uh, in other areas too. So smart factory, uh, we're uh, leveraging generative generative AI to make sure that uh, we can make collective decisions, real-time decisions, and make the work more effective, but at the same time safer. Your technology partners on this uh, include Palantir, which mm -hmm. is an interesting data relationship, mm -hmm. and AWS, which mm -hmm. has a strong presence yes. here. W what are you doing with those two companies in particular? And we're making sure that the smart factory and making the operation efficient and safe is the focus, and we're really excited about the partnership. You've been coming to CES a little yes. while. Uh -huh. What is your read speaking to customers, government mm -hmm. officials, mm -hmm. uh, people you bump into on the mm -hmm. showroom floor about 2024? Mm -hmm. You know, what is the Megan Myung-Long Lee uh, kind of like, here's what I think is going to happen this year, but relevant to your world, right, mm -hmm. which includes everything from consumer electronics to, right. to EV battery. Right, right. Uh, CTA, we're partnering with, with CTA. This year, we're 51st year of participation nonstop. And in North America, we pivoted uh, from consumer electronics company. We're strong, still very strong in consumer electronics space, but we vertically integrated that technology into all the other B2B areas. Uh, we are very happy with the evolution and partnership that we're working with CTA so that it's not just consumer electronics uh, products and technology, but we're in other B2B solutions area, including EV, 
and uh, it's wonderful to be here that the platform is expanding and there's a lot more potential in the future. And um, for example, we have a device car in our booth right. that shows all the technology that we have that we're uh, leveraging in automotive. So I hope you come and take a I look will. at it. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm right in saying you just bumped into your friend Barbara Hampton yes. of Siemens on the yes. staircase. We talked about the Inflation Reduction Act right. and the, the supportive regulatory environment. Yes. Uh, how do you view that, the, the, the availability of funding from government and to build in the U.S.? So financially, it makes a lot of sense for us, and we're very grateful for the government for making that uh, push. Um, we talked about we've been in Reno for 10 years, so we have been committed uh, for that long term. And it's wonderful for us to talk about that U.S. government uh, backup to our headquarters in Japan that we feel like we have the validation from the government about the commitment and investment. And it feels great. And IRA has been wonderful for us to go us faster and better. Megan Young Wong Lee, Panasonic North America CEO here at CES Las Vegas. Caroline, back to you. Just such deep dive conversations, Ed. We love it. Keep it coming. Meanwhile, for you coming up, we're going to be talking the state of artificial intelligence and whether or not we're in an AI bubble. Wesley Chan, co-founder and managing partner of FPV Ventures, joins us next to discuss. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Time now for VC Spotlight. And after a banner year for AI fundraising and pretty tough year for absolutely everyone else, what can we expect from AI, the burgeoning technology in 2024, for fundraising, for valuations? Joining us now, Wesley Chan, co-founder and managing partner over at FPV Ventures. And well, we like contrarians. And it feels as though, Wesley, perhaps you're feeling a bit contrarian on AI valuations right now. 
Yeah, I, I, uh, it's one of those things where we're just watching it grow like crazy, and we're sort of keeping out just a bit to let the let the let the valuations fall back down to earth. You know, we we are huge fans of AI. I've been investing in AI since you know I started my career at Google Ventures mm. uh, almost uh, 15 years ago. But you know, it's one of those things where we're seeing a lot of similarities to where the crypto the crypto hype was going on in the dot com boom. So you know, we we want to be careful about this given you know the charities and the children's hospital money that we we work with and manage. So the portfolio companies that you do have that stand out with heady valuations, your Decacorns, Unicorns, Canva, Guild, have these companies, have you talked to the founders about not having to feel they must bolt on AI in some sort of lexicon fashion or indeed are they already interweaving it within the business and just don't need to shout about it in quite the way that others are? Yeah, you know, Canva, for example, launched its uh, magic features where you can type in an amazing sort of thing that comes out of your mind. I want to make a presentation about Bloomberg, for example, and then they use AI to help you auto-generate a lot of it. So they're using it, but they're doing it quietly. And there are features that benefit users versus, you know, sort of saying we're just doing AI for the sake of doing AI, which, you know, a lot of companies today that are getting these hefty valuations are getting. You know, they're not hyping it up. They're not going crazy about it. But, you know, they're using it just to make the make the product a lot easier to use. That's, the, that's really about the promise of AI. It just makes things so much easier and so much more automated and so much more, you know, as Canva calls it, magic. So we're seeing enterprise adopt AI a lot because of the power and the utility of the of the of the that it brings to the table. But we're not we're not just investing in companies because they do AI for the sake of it, which is what's you know what we're seeing a lot in, the, in these hefty valuations that are happening in the venture market right now. So where are you investing? What is it that makes a founder stand out for you? Well, we invest in mission-driven founders, folks like Larry and Sergey, where I had uh, a 15-year career at Google and got to work, you know, personally with Sergey as part of his uh, as his chief of staff for five of those years. And you know, they have these amazing views on what the world is. We call them unique insights, uh, and they basically say, if we do what we're going to go do, the world is going to change. I mean, I still remember Sergey giving me his 100-year plan, right? And if you look at Cliff and Mel at Canva, where I've worked with them for almost 10 years, uh, you know, what, everybody thought uh, Cliff and Mel in Australia were crazy. They were the founders of Canva, and uh, uh, you know, 10 years later, you know, almost every person under 35 is using uh, Canvas product to help design and build uh, presentations or, or their homework or their, uh, or their work. And so, you know, they have 100-year plans and they have a vision of the world that changes, uh, of how the world changes when they, when they launch their product and everything goes, you know, to where they want to build. I'm sure when you're a mission-driven founder, often you're one that wants to remain independent and wants to see the full legacy of your business and ultimately IPO. What was interesting, a lazy association was made between Figma and Canva, for example, but that was an interesting deal that then didn't happen and a valuation that was skyrocketing for a company like Figma. How does Canva see, how do you see an exit for Canva? I think uh, Canva is going to probably likely IPO. That's really up to Cliff and Mel. But it's one of those companies where you know Cliff and Mel really want to go build a product that everybody wants to use, and the world changes. It's not about AI. It's about how do I how do I make my life better, right? You know, kids are using it for their homework so they can collaborate. Adults are using it to create presentations or marketing materials uh, for what they need to do for work, and it's just ubiquitous, right? And I think when you build something that useful, uh, you know, the world changes. I mean, it was the same way at Google. At the beginning, everybody was like, "Oh, that's kind of cute. It's a search engine with a blank white page." And with uh, two buttons on it, and today, you know, Google's ubiquitous for, for, for search, right? The world just changes when you build something that's better than everyone else, and that makes the user experience so much better. I think that's, uh, that's what many of the founders we invest in truly understand. There has been one or two kids' party invitations designed via Canva in my household. Meanwhile, though, I'm interested, Wesley and Stone, yeah. 
ultimately what the rest of the market has to look like right now. If you do see eventually an IPO, which of course has to be what the founders want as well, are any of them going to happen in 2024? You know, uh, a lot of bankers have told me it might reopen uh, at the end of 2024. And I, you know, just being on you know 10 plus boards, we have this conversation a lot in the boardroom. And I think that the it's not going to happen this year. The IPO market for the for the most part is uh, has shut down. Uh, there's not a lot of people that want to go test the market or test the waters unless they really have to. There's some there's some artificial reason, like you know their employee stock options, you know, coming to fruition or something of that sort, where they have to go to IPO. And you know, we've seen the last couple of some top companies like Instacart and Clavio that unfortunately didn't perform as well. So I think most of the top companies are just waiting for, for IPO uh, in 2025 or later. So uh, 2024 is going to be a brutal year for IPO, and that's a, that's a challenge. And because of that, the, you, a lot of growth investors don't see returns or don't see exits for their companies, and so they're not investing and they're not deploying capital. Uh, and so it's going to be a brutal year for both venture, for both growth, and for IPOs. And maybe to be able to pick some winners when everyone else isn't laying down checks, Wesley. What's interesting yeah. is at the start of the conversation, you sort of associated the AI hype with well, some of the boom and the bust that we've seen of late crypto being one of them. Well, at the moment, everyone's kind of exuberant around crypto once again as we anticipate the SEC signing off on, on yeah. the spot Bitcoin ETF. What do you make of the space at the moment? Are you getting any pitches? Is it ever something that you are going to be touching? You know, there's a really funny observation I've had. A lot of people that had crypto venture funds have become AI or Gen AI venture funds at the moment. And it's so sort of funny watching that transition. You know, I think we see highs in Bitcoin and what was it, 48,000 uh, US dollars at the uh, beginning of the year. But, you know, there are a lot of people just moving money into things that they think, you know, have, a, have an, inflationary, uh, an inflationary hold, just given some of these crazy currency uh, transitions that we're seeing in com countries like Argentina or maybe even China. But uh, a lot of it's driven by speculation still. And, you know, I, I'm just very, very careful. I don't invest in the hype or invest in the speculation because at some point that bubble pops. We saw it in dot-com boom. We saw it in grocery delivery. We saw it in scooters. We saw it at crypto, you know, uh, you know a, couple, a couple years back. So we're just very, very careful in picking companies that have the ability to stand the test of time. And like Canva, just compound and grow and create products that people want and that people want to pay for and then grow because of that. You know, those are, those are some of the companies that have done best by me. I saw it first in at Google and then I see it first in now Canva. Wesley, it's always great catching up with you. Thank you. No, what a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Wesley Chan of FPV Ventures. I think it's still early days in terms of what are the applications that are going to be really killer for the smartphones. The hardware is, is enabled now, so you have capability now inside the smartphone that can run these AI algorithms. But for example, two areas that people really care about are uh, latency and privacy. I'm CEO Rene Haas there on the implementation, the use of AI with their products. Of course, he's speaking to us from the CES event in Las Vegas. Time now for more Talking Tech. First up, Global Chips. They rose for the first time more than a year. Data from Semiconductor Industry Association saw worldwide revenue grew to $48 billion in November, a 5.3% increase from the year earlier. Now, the strong sales strength is the latest indication of a possible rebound in emerging tech. Meanwhile, data analysis firm Palantir, it says they see huge demand in their new AI products from Israel ever since the start of their war with Hamas on October the 7th. Now, Israel has acknowledged they've used AI-based systems in an effort to aid operations in identifying targets and airstrikes. Palantir is set to hold a board meeting in Tel Aviv for the first time as a gesture of solidarity with Israel. 
Meanwhile, Israel's competition authority says it reached an agreement with Meta after the company failed to report two acquisitions. Now, the social media giant is set to pay $6.65 million in fines relating to the purchases of Redkick in 2018 and Service Friend in 2019. And Amazon, they're seeing some layoffs once again. This time, the company slashing hundreds from its Prime Video and Studios unit, continuing the trend that, well, began in late 2022. And it's not just there. Twitch, in particular, seeing hundreds of jobs on the line. Matt Day now joins us for more. And, I mean, are we to be surprised by this, that we're curtailing the area of, of production in particular? No, I don't think so, especially as you look around entertainment. Um, just a ton of pain right now in the streaming services and folks kind of reassessing you know, how many bodies they're going to need for the demand for just the, uh, the ton of streamable content out there. Um, Amazon's studios boss, Mike Hopkins, mentioned they plan to discontinue some things um, over the course of these layoffs. They didn't specify what exactly those were, um, but really just the latest in, in what looks like cuts um, you know, all over the place at Amazon that they petered out. It's not you know, tens of thousands of people the way it was a year ago, but it's, it seems to be ongoing. And to be fair, I mean, it's ongoing across production elsewhere. I mean, we've seen job cups at Disney. We've seen people curtail on their spending. Netflix has held their spending steady in terms of new content production. But what's interesting is it comes at the same time as Amazon seems to be trying to right-size Twitch as well. What does that say about Twitch's future? You know, Twitch has, has always been a bit of a weird one uh, for Amazon, just a huge audience of people who um, you know, largely are watching video game streaming, but it's really hard to monetize, right? They're very expensively beaming uh, video content around the world, but it's, it's not, a great, uh, not a great user base for ads. They tend to balk when suddenly you see a roll for Coke in the middle of a, of a video game stream. Um, so definitely an acknowledgement that Amazon, you know, just about 10 years after buying um, Twitch, is still struggling to, to make the thing uh, profitable. Do you think we are done? Is this just the future, like some smaller rolling job cuts? It's really hard to say. I think one, one thing, if you talk to Amazon employees, they'll point out is the company never said um, all clear, so to speak, mm -hmm. after their big job cuts of, of two falls ago and, and last spring. Um, and then you know, they just they just keep stacking up. In addition to the two this week, you know, they, they shut down AMP, um, the, uh, the music service, podcast service, rather, other live audio, I suppose, is the correct term, um, and, and more cuts on the devices group in Alexa um, last year as well. So they just kind of keep coming. It sure looks like a drumbeat um, for a company that, you know, for more than a decade didn't do that at all. And that's tough for morale. Matt Day, thank you so much for joining us on the latest out of Amazon. Meanwhile, look, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Do not forget to check out our podcast. Find it on the Terminal, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your content when it comes to audio. More on CES to come. This is Bloomberg Technology. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.